change you. So we'll see how it goes, though. Um, as a brief introduction, so yeah, a few weeks ago, let's see, is the towards the end of January, um, there was Men's Discipleship Conference back at Pennsylvania, and that's what we're going to be giving a report on. Um, just a brief overview. Um, in the there was two sessions in the morning. The first one was by Brandon Brandon Byler. Um, some of you are probably familiar with him. Um, it's Johnny Martin's son-in-law, actually, married Johnny Martin's daughter, um, and I'm actually going to be focusing almost entirely on his sessions. Um, after that was a guy named Lee Rufner from Wisconsin. Really good sessions. They were really geared towards men. The title was The War on Manhood. For all you men, um, very, very good. Actually, probably my favorite sessions of the week. So you get a chance, listen to those. And then there was lunch, afternoon sessions, prayer and sharing, supper, and then there was some session or a session in the evening. It was really good. If you get a chance to go next year, um, it was very well worth the, the time. It's four days in the middle of the week, so you can be, um, if, you, if you don't want to miss a weekend, you can actually go and come back all in the same week. Um, they kind of set it up that way on purpose. Okay, so I'm just going to jump right in. Brandon's series was on culture, um, and um, basically the, the whole week was just a continuation of his, of his theme. He started out the first day by telling a story. Him and his co-workers, he works on a construction crew, and uh, I think it was last year, they decided to go on a canoe trip, which um, I thought was interesting because we've had experience with that here. Um, so um, there was a, a group of them uh, that, that went down the Shenandoah River down in, I think it, they started in West Virginia. I think it goes into Virginia and then meets up with the Potomac River, and that's where they were getting out right after the, the convergence of those two rivers. Um, he said he'd grown up around water. He was a pretty good swimmer. He had a life jacket. He thought he was, he was, he was good to go. Um, and the the trip started off very peaceful, very um, um, he said almost boring. It was it was calm water. They were just moving down the river. It was really just having a great time. Um, but then they encountered their first set of rapids. And so, like you do when you get to rapids, you aim for the V. You you do what they call shooting rapids. You shoot the rapids and you and you try to. Um, go down the center. Um, and so they attempted to do that, but somehow they didn't do it correctly or, or, or whatever happened, they capsized. And so what you're supposed to do is hold on to, you know, stay with the, the canoe. And they tried to grab as much stuff as they could. And they, they got off to the shore and they emptied their, their boat, emptied the water out of their boat. And they um, kind of took inventory. I think they lost a couple things, but for the most part, they had found everything. Another canoe had flipped as well. And they found most i think they lost a phone but they ended up finding the phone so anyways they were they were good to go so they got back in the water and they kept going well throughout the day they continued to encounter more and more rapids and they continued to capsize over and over again um i think he said it was at least three or four times throughout the day so by the time they got you know close to close to the end he was more than ready to be done um he was completely soaked at this point and um and this was just not quite how you envisioned the trip to go. Um, so when they neared the end of their trip, they got to the point where the Shenandoah meets with the Potomac River, and it's um, there's. I actually looked up some pictures of it. It's it's very um, tumultuous water there. There's rocks all over the place, and there's these two rivers um, converging. Um, and so they got there, and again they seen the rapids, and they tried to do their best, and they were hopeful that they could make it. But they didn't. They got in the middle of those rapids. Their their canoe capsized again, and their 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 uh, their boat. The current was so strong, it was starting to just flip their boat, and they were trying to hold on to their boat. And he actually didn't know before this, but the coworker that he was with was kind of scared of water, so that didn't help anything. And and the boat and the current was just pushing him underwater over and over again, and he was like thought he was going to see him drown right before his eyes. So he yelled at him. He said, "Let go of the canoe." So they both let go of the canoe, and now it's just like every man for himself. So they're they're just going downstream with the current. Um, they they lost the canoe, they lost the cooler and everything that was in their canoe. Um, and actually, as he was going down the river, he seen his coworker's hat floating down the river, and it just it was it gave him this eerie feeling, like what if there was a person under there? He didn't think there was, but it was just concerning. Um. So they, they kept going down. Another, uh, there was one of their other coworkers was in a kayak, and he came down, and, and um, the um, the coworker that was with him in the canoe was able to hold on to this other guy's kayak, and 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 he took him over to a rock that was kind of in the middle of the the um, 
the, the river there. So he decided, well, he'll try to make it to the rock too because he wasn't sure if he could make it to shore. So he's getting closer and closer to this rock, and all of a sudden he realizes that the current is going to take him one way or the other. He's not going to be able to get to this rock. And at this point he's like, what am I going to do? Like, am I going to like just go out to sea? Like, am I just never, like, what's going to happen here? So, but thankfully he yelled for help and somebody that somebody else was on this, I guess there was several people on this rock, put out a, a, a paddle and, and pulled him in. So they made it to this rock and they were huddled there for a while. Um, he said, I think, like 45 minutes or something until they finally figured out a way to, to get off this rock. And, and actually their exit point was pretty close to this point. So they were able to get there and, and get to shore. One of the other, some of the other coworkers that were further back had came upon their canoe that was now stuck. It had basically, the current had just pushed it up against, I don't know if it was a tree branch or a rock or something, and it was, it was just stuck fast. And so they tried to, to pull that canoe out. They actually first felt around because they weren't sure if somebody was trapped under there, but thankfully there wasn't. Um, but then they were trying to pull this canoe out. And I think they said there was two or three people just working this canoe, and they could not get this canoe loose. from The current was that strong pushing this, this canoe up against whatever it was stuck on. So they ended up leaving. It was a borrowed canoe. They ended up leaving it there, um, and they lost, you know, everything that was in it. Um, so, anyways, they eventually made it all back to shore. They gathered in a circle and they just thanked God for sparing their lives. Thankfully, they all they all made it out alive. Um, he said that he was confident when they started the trip. Um, he knew a bit about water. He had his life jacket. He thought, you know, this this should go well. But what he failed to reckon with was the power of the current. Uh, here's, here's some quotes. He said, Brandon said, We are in a wrestling match for the souls of our children and for our churches. He said, All around us, fellowships and families are being swept away by the currents of prevailing culture. Many of them we see no more, and we do not know yet what their place is before God. I think we probably all know people like this. Families that were once here, um, families that we know, that have been swept away, as he says, by the currents of prevailing culture. He said, I trust God will help us help us awaken from our Anabaptist dreaming and consider the cultural nightmare that is upon us. He said, what he, when it came to water, he was ready, but he had not reckoned with the fact that this water was going somewhere. He said, on any given week, most of us are swimming in multiple cultural currents. Um, think like in your workplace, you probably have one um, culture there, or the people that, that you interact with at work have a different culture than your family culture and um, or your church culture that we have here. So we're swimming in multiple cultural waters. What we may forget is every current, I'm sorry, every culture has a current, and that current is going somewhere. He said, most cultures are leading away from God. Most cultures are leading away from God. He said, cultures have currents and they are going somewhere and so are you. So I'll talk a little bit about um, what he called prevailing culture, the culture that's around us. He, he used the term pop culture, which is short for popular culture. It's the culture that is been the prevailing culture here in America for quite some time. I think longer ago he said that um, there was what he referred to as classical culture or folk culture. And I don't know, maybe Abe will go into more of that. He, he spent a lot of time talking about these different cultures. But today we live in the middle of pop culture, and those that culture is going somewhere. It has a set of values that, that it ascribes to. Um, and here's some of the values that he said pop culture is, is uh, um, stands for. It's it's looking for the the novel, the new, whatever is fun, um, and think about how that can impact the church. Even uh, the pop culture is suspicious of authority and of the past. It's allergic to formality. It's impatient with the limitations of impropriety. It's fearful as being of being perceived as uncool, and it's individualistic. He said, that's the culture we're swimming in around us. That's, that's what pop culture, um, that's the values that it, that it holds, and that's, that's where it's going. Um, and, and that's, that's why this is serious. That's why these things are not the values that we stand for, and that's why we need to be careful of where 
the, the, the currents that we're swimming in and where they are going. Um, so we talked about four ways that Christians have chosen to engage, four different ways that Christians have chosen to engage with the culture. And I'm just going to write these on the board. The first one that he talked about is condemning. So the, the, the condemner, this person, looks at the culture around us and he is... Um, He's talking about the is constantly talking about the, the evil, the bad things that are in the culture around us. He says, "Look out for the the you know this new danger that's coming along, and the this new you know maybe the we heard recently Jeremy's talking about the transgender movement, and and this person is constantly just he's looking for what he can condemn in the culture around us. The next person is the critiquer. Critiquing, so critiquing culture. So this person, it's it's kind of similar, but it's not all negative. He just wants to analyze. This, the, the critiquer wants to to look at the culture around us and look at all the the, the pros and the cons and, and talk about um, where this culture is going and where that culture is going. And and he, he's a critiquer. He's an analyzer. Uh, the third way we can deal with culture, we can engage with culture, is copy culture. Copying culture. Um, we see this in, um, you know, in movements like CCM, the CCM music movement. They said, "Hey, the world's got a great set of music. Let's copy their beat. Let's copy their their wispy vocals. And let's just change the words a little bit and make them Christian." And there we go. We've got we've got um, Christian music. So uh, we take what the world has, change it a little bit. Copy, copy culture. We see this in movies. It's a huge movement nowadays. Let's make really good Christian movies. Let's do production just like the world can do it. Let's make it good quality. Let's get good actors. Let's make it engaging. And let's make it Christian. And there we go. We copied culture. Something that's a little closer home, this is something that he brought up. He said growing up, um, there were young people would, um, they, they wouldn't cuss, they wouldn't swear, but they would take four-letter words that the world uses and change a letter or two and then use that instead. Uh, that's copying culture. Fourth way is just consume. Consume culture. Just hey, it's 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 here. Let's let's enjoy it. Um, let's see what see what it's got to offer. Now the shortcomings of all four of these, and and the the biggest shortcoming is um, that it doesn't it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, it's all about um, basically. Um, it, well, let me say it this way: it, all four of these are passive. They're not um, doing anything about the culture. They're just responding to what the where the culture is going. They're just waiting for the next thing to come out. The the condemner, he's just waiting for the next thing to come out so he can condemn. The critiquer, he's just waiting for the next thing to come out so he can talk about it and analyze it. The copier, he's going to copy it, and the consumer is going to consume it. It's not actually, um, it's not actually doing anything about it. It's, um, it doesn't actually cause the Christians that are that are doing these things to live any differently. They don't actually do anything about the culture. Uh, he had a quote: "Cultural engagement without cultural wisdom leads to cultural captivity." Now he said that there, not um, that there isn't ever a place for one of these things. But these four um, uh, responses, these four ways to engage the culture should not be our main posture. It should not be the, the main way that we engage in culture. Now, what should that be? And this is where um, he says we need to create a counterculture. We need to create a new current, a new stream, a, different, a, a, a current flowing in a different direction and supporting a different set of values. And we can't do that when you're focused on these four things. Now, there's two ways to do that. So these are two different ways to engage in culture. The first one is cultivate, cultivating. Um, somebody that would like to, um, let's say, create new piano music cannot um, just just uh, sit down in front of a piano and create music. They must first learn how to play a piano. They have to first learn 
the language of the piano, and then they can create piano music. Um, before we can create culture, we have to learn to cultivate it. And um, I believe, to, to, uh, to try to explain this differently, I guess, I believe what he's saying is we can't just... Um, if we just decide to create a new culture on our own, it's probably not going to work super well. We have to first learn, and we actually know, we actually see this with like missionaries, for instance. They can't just go to another country and immediately, um, you know, change the culture there. They usually have to learn the culture first, learn what the values are there, learn how to interact with it. And what he's saying here is, if we want to cultivate a culture in, let's say, our our um, church tradition, we have to first learn to cultivate it. And then the last step is we can learn to create it. We can build it up. We can improve it. We can, um, as as uh, Johnny Martin says, we can add cultural capital to our to our culture. So the last way is create or creating. And these are the these are the two ways that we should focus on engaging culture, and not the first four. Creating culture takes a group. You can't do it by yourself. Um, he talked about in his past, he has a very interesting story I'm not really going to get into, but um, he was once a part of a church that was um, kind of a mix between, he said, ex-Mennonites, ex-Holiness, ex-Presbyterian himself, which is kind of a whole different, uh, I don't know what you would call him, um, and um, some others. And he said they were going to try to make brotherhood work. He said they were all good, solid, conservative families. Um, but he said the problem was they were each conservative in their own way. And he had this quote. He said, the fathers were expecting of their wife and children what they were unwilling to demonstrate themselves. And that's a huge problem. And then he said, um, we all had a family, or oh, he said, we all have a family identity. But when that is the identity, it does not allow us to blend with the church family. He said, God does not dictate exactly how culture should be practiced. He leaves that up to us. But it has to be practiced together or it doesn't work. Um, he also said this. He said, if your church is not more than a generation old, more than one generation old, your church is an experiment. That's an interesting concept. He also talked about... Um, well, I won't get into that. I don't really have time. But it's it, the the whole concept is: is our culture, is our church enduring? Is it going to last, um, or is this just a passing one generational movement that's going to come and go? And where are our children going to be left? So it's a it's an interesting thought, something that we should think about. Um, but obviously, the the bigger a current, the stronger it is. The bigger, um, and so that, I think there's a there's a um, a value of having of doing culture together, multi-church, you know, not just our church, not just one family, but multiple churches. It makes that um, it makes that culture stabler. It makes that current that's moving in the direction of the values that we want more enduring, more lasting. Also, just briefly, I want to talk about. He talked about false dichotomies. Um, for instance, a false dichotomy is is two things that need to stay together, but people want to separate them. The classic one is faith and works. The, the evangelicals want to say, you either have faith or you have works. If you're really a, a faith-based person, you won't worry about works. Um, and, or, or the other way around. But obviously we know that's, that's false. Um, he said it's a false dichotomy to say cultural definition or spirituality. You can be, you can have a defined culture or you can be spiritual, but you can't do both. No, those things, they actually have to stay together, just like faith and works have to stay together. Um, and, and he says, use this model to describe it, the work, what he calls the balance tension model. And we live with this all, all the time. Um, for instance, we all would love to, or let's say you fathers would probably love to stay with your family or your wife all the time. But you know you also have to go and provide. You have to go and work. It's a balance. If you work all the time, that's a problem. If, you're, if you don't work at all and you're just with your family all the time, that's a problem too. Both of those are good things. They need to be in balance. You need to provide. You also need to be there for your family and help raise them. Um, so it's a, it's a balanced tension. And there's some tension in defined culture, spirituality. Those things need to stay together. If we try to separate them off, it doesn't work. 
Okay, I'm going to try to... I'm going to try to get through this. So, um, why culture matters. I think this is important. This is a little bit technical, so just stay with me here. So, um, he, he, he um, asked the question, what does it mean to be human? Um, what does it really mean? When it really comes down to it, what, is, what does it mean to be a human? Um, there was a, a famous philosopher years ago uh, named Rene Descartes. Said, he, he had this quote. He said, I think, therefore I am. And what this really, basically what he was saying is when it really comes down to the most basic, fundamental thing in my life, if I'm thinking, I am. In other words, it's all about, it's all about our thoughts and our beliefs. That's what makes us human. And this, this philosophy comes into the church and it says this. Um, um, if, if I can just dump into your mind the right thoughts and the right truths, you'll get it all together. That's where this that's where this leads. Basically, you're a thinking ism. You're a you're a brain on a stick. That's who you are. And if if we can just get you to think the right things, you'll get it all together. But he's saying that's not the case. And we all know this. We sit through a good sermon. We say we're going to do better until like Tuesday evening, and then you know we're back to wherever we were before. And what he's saying is it's it's not we're not just spirits. We're body, soul, and spirit, and those things are linked. Um, and um, and I think this church, the, the church has bought in this philosophy and said, well, it's all about you just having the right beliefs, the right worldview on salvation and end times and whatever it is. And if you just believe all the right things, that's all that matters. Um, but he said, this is the way he described. He said, that's not a good way to, to, um, to describe what it is to be human. And he said, his definition was this, um, I am what I love. So he said, God is love, like we talked about this morning, and we, we as people are people that are lovers. We have a, what he, what he described as a love pump inside of each one of us, and it's directed in a direction, and it will always be running. We're always gonna be directing our love towards something. And so he, he described that by drawing an arrow. So this is our love pump, and he drew a target here. That's what we're aiming for. That's what we view as the good life. That's what we view as flourishing. We are, our love is directed at what we view is is um, the way things ought to be. Um, but this love pump can be directed. This pump can't be turned off, but it can be direct, and it can be misdirected as well. It can be directed towards the wrong things. Um, and he said what, and this is what's important. He said what what directs this love pump is our habits, and he described that with a heart. Excuse my poor drawing. Um, so our habits dictate where our love is pointed. And what di- what often defines our habits, um, I can't remember how he drew this. I think it was just like a half circle or something. Um, but he said it's our cultural, basically our culture. Our culture um, influences our habits, and our habits influence what we love. If you get up in the morning every day and you... Um, um, work out for two hours a day, that will become, fitness will become something you view as important. Habits dictate what we love, and that's what makes us human. I mean, and that's the one of the fundamental things. So if we want to raise children and we want to um, influence what they're desiring in life, where they're going, we have to influence their habits. It's not just, and, and I, I thought of this example my, um, in our family growing up, we always um, we always viewed it as very important. I know most of you, probably all of you, the same um, to to attend church services. So we would come. We would be here hopefully on time every Sunday. And pretty much whether we were sick or, or well, we came to church. We also have children's lessons about how you should always come and listen to the preacher and pay attention. But I'm pretty sure our cultural habit of always attending church, whether we were I mean, unless we were on death's door, pretty much, was far more influential in teaching me that church is important than a hundred children's lessons. Because it's not about just pouring the right information into a child or into an adult. It's about the culture that influences their habit, that influences what they love, and where their love is directed. Okay? He also talked about thick and thin habits. So brushing your teeth, for instance, 
thin habit. It doesn't actually influence what you love that much. Most people don't identify themselves as a toothbrusher. But we all do it. It's a good habit. But it's not something that really defines what we love. On the other hand, like I said, like, you know, maybe attending church, that, that's a, it's a much more, it's, it, it's, a, it's a thick habit. It influences our love a lot more. Um, so that's why seemingly maybe mundane things are very important in, in directing that cultural current, which is, which is what um, influences our love and our values. Um, he talked about clothing some, and I want to be careful because I don't want to steal Jeremy's thunder. He's preaching a whole series on this, and so I don't want to, um, yeah, say anything that he already said or is going to say. But he told a story. He grew up in the brother in Christ, brethren in Christ circles and a few other circles. His life is very interesting. But um, way back in the 50s, Brother, Brother in Christ historically actually had some Anabaptist influence, but way back in the 50s, they decided to join the National Evangel- uh, Evangelical Association. And he, um, and so they, they, they sent a, a group of uh, representatives to the NEA meeting, and they all got there, and they, and, you know, this is back in the 50s. And at the time, Brother in Christ were, you know, discussing, debating, you know, do they allow this clothing, and, you know, some very minor things of, of, of clothing, um, that they were that they had been um, struggling with as a church group or as a group of churches, and so they went to this NEA, NEA meeting and they said, "Look at all these people; they're all serving God. They're not worrying about all this stuff." Like, let's. They actually went to their hotel room. This is the the story, and repented for all of their um, just unspiritual things, um, and they were going to just focus on evangelism and. Um, you know, not focus on all these non-important matters. Um, he said that he went back to the church that he grew up in recently, and they had a poster on the back wall. There was they were doing a church activity um, at the swimming pool. They were having mixed swimming as a like basically a youth activity, and they said on there they said you're required to wear a one the, or the ladies were required to wear a one piece swimming suit. And he said that I can almost assure you that there were people pushing back on that and saying, why do we need this rule? Why do we need this limitation? And he said this. He said, I am thankful for the battles we're fighting. I'm thankful for, you know, sure, we might be discussing, you know, Jeremy preached a sermon about material types. That seems really um, non-important, right? Like, why are we just... But he said, I would rather be discussing that than dealing with this and it's not it's not whether you're going to fight a battle it's where you're going to fight it um clothing he said clothing speaks a huge volume the the world knows clothing is important the conservative church knows it's important but there's a kind of a big swath in between that says ah clothing's not important it doesn't really say anything but it speaks tremendous volumes um clothing i think tells you it speaks to yourself you put on certain set of clothing it changes your own your identity of yourself it changes, um, it, it speaks to your children, it speaks to others. It's important. He talked about, um, a, um, there was a court trial that he attended for somebody he knew, and the room was full of lawyers, um, the judge was in his, his robes, the lawyers were all dressed up with suit and tie, very you know, professionally. And he said it would have felt completely different if they all would have been there with, um, I think he said jeans and polo shirts. Because... Clothing does speak. Um, it, it does bring a message. Okay, I just want to touch on. Yeah, well, one of the the challenge that he left us with that week was: is our culture around clothing a thick or a thin cultural habit? Is it enduring? Is it lasting? Or is it not important and going to get swept aside after? short amount of time i think it's something that we should consider um just a few more minutes i'll try i'll try not to shortchange it here abe um he talked about this idea of third culture kids this term was coined talking about missionary kids so parents grow up in america they're missionaries um, in another culture and their children are kind of halfway in between they grew up on the mission field back home on furlough 
and they're and they're what they refer to as third culture kids. They're kind of stuck in the middle. Where where do they belong? Where do they fit in? And he said that he feels like a third culture kid. And he also said he he actually had all the people that have changed church settings sometime in their life to stand, which was pretty much everybody except like me and the younger ones, and or I mean my generation and down. And he said that. In a sense, the younger generation in our circles feels like third culture kids. Their parents came from one culture. They're now in a different culture or a different church setting. And one thing about third culture kids, he says, is they crave stability, which I can understand. Um, And I actually had an interesting conversation with, um, or we had an interesting conversation at our youth singing last Tuesday night, I believe. Um, And... Um, I'm going to pick on Joshua a little bit. He asked a question that I thought was really good. He said, um, he basically said, in a, you know, we live here in America and we see the culture just disintegrating around us. It's just going down, down, down. All this craziness with, you know, this political agendas that we see. Is it even like, is there even a hope? Is there, this is not, I'm putting words in his mouth, but is there even a future here? Should we even be having children and, 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 and moving on to it, you know, bringing up children in this environment? And I think it's a good question. I think it's a question that probably every young person here has asked themselves at some point. Like, what, is there hope? Is there a future? And I think that sometimes the older generation doesn't do the greatest job at talking about the hope. And we kind of maybe focus on the condemning a little bit too much. There is a hope. And I was thinking about it um, this last week. Um, you know, long before America even existed, actually probably nearly 100 years before America even existed, Three men um, stood for truth. They got rebaptized in the middle of a, 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 um, a Catholic world. Um, they, they had a vision for what the Christian life should look like. And they passed it on to their children. They started the, the Anabaptist movement. And those children passed it on to their children. And those children passed it on to their children. And more people have joined that movement and that tradition and that heritage. And, and it's grown and it's changed over time, of course. But we're still passing that on generation after generation. 499 years later, we're still here. We still have that same legacy, that heritage, that same cultural current. And, of course, you go back to Christ and the early church, and, and of course. But the question is, will we cultivate and help create that cultural current that's flowing in the direction, the, the values? And, sure, it's not perfect, but it's at least flowing towards the principles that we uphold, or will we view it as, as not important? Because the things we view as not important will probably uh, quickly fall by the wayside, especially as we go generation after generation. He said this. He said, um, he said a classic is defined by something that's lasted 100 years. You're going to be influenced by probably two generations above you, and you'll influence two generations below you. It's about five generations worth. It's about 100 years. If something has lasted more than 100 years, it's enduring. All the original people that had any influence whatsoever are gone. That kind of puts it in perspective. The question is, are we building something that's enduring or not? So thank you very much. Um, If you get a chance, listen to the messages. Um, Hopefully Abe can fill in some of the major holes that I left and clarify the things that I was confusing on. Thank you. Well, Dennis, I'm not sure I can. You didn't leave a whole lot of holes. It was very good. Um, there's a few things uh, I would like to share on. Um, I don't feel like I can quite do it justice. It's been uh, it's, it's good being there, and I came back, and after Jeremy had suggested us share uh, today, this morning, I went back and listened to all the sermons again and uh, thought maybe I'd glean something from it, uh, uh, get some more, get some more clarity, get, you know, a few more ideas to share. Uh, but then I realized that there's a lot of things that I'd brought home that weren't from the sessions. It was from the discussions over supper and lunch and uh, break times afterwards and go back and re-listen, back up, re-listen again and 
and couldn't find what I was looking for. And then I realized, well, it was something that was discussed over lunch. So listening to the sermons is only half of what you get out of uh, uh, conference a conference like that. So if that's any encouragement for the rest of you guys to go next year, uh, I don't know what that would be. I'd very much like to see everyone there. Anyways, without further comment, uh, we'll jump in here. Uh, Brandon Byler, uh, I guess I've got a lot to share on that one, on his uh, sessions. Uh, to me, the first two speakers uh, were the most, uh, I got the most out of those. Uh, the second one, Lee Rufner shared on uh, manhood. I won't go too much into too much detail for that. It was a group of guys, maybe a little deeper there, but culture is something I think all of us can benefit from, and we all wrestle with that, men and women alike. Um, anyway, as Dennis shared, Brandon compared the, our culture, so we're in a culture, our Anabaptist culture is in a, what we uh, term as worldly culture, and it's, if we don't fight that worldly culture with a counterculture, we're going to be taken by that culture. <clears throat> and we cannot be a part of the world's culture and make it to heaven. And there's a saying, you know, you got to be like the world to win the world. Well, in that case, all you're doing is just jumped into the current and, uh, you're not paddling against it. You're not doing your best to fight it. You're just going along with the world, and you're going to end up out in sea until, unless uh, somebody gives you a paddle to pull you onto the rock. Um, the easiest way to fight the world and its culture is to create our own. And since we're not some of the early Christians, we don't need to exactly start from scratch and create create our own and even then they didn't either they they followed Christ and uh, um, and the culture he gave us and we've got that thankfully written down in the New Testament we can follow that um, thus the Bible basically creates our culture and dangerous cultural currents what are they? And that's a question I guess I want to ask you guys. Uh, what what are some dangerous cultural currents or or things that we have to wrestle against in our church, in our Anabaptist culture, that's going to keep us from the goal? So what are some of those cultural things, currents that uh, we're wrestling with. Individualism. Individualism is a very, very big one. Anyone else? Entertainment. Entertainment. That's that's another one as well. Entertainment, always the next biggest thing to keep us from being bored. It's happening very much so in the youth and our Anabaptist circles. Materialism. Materialism. Uh, yeah, that's a very good one. It's something everybody. That's something in this uh, in this day and age. Uh, had it here somewhere. Um. It was individualism, obviously, not unsubmission to each other. And let's see if I can find it here. Anyways, we'll probably get to that. I know I have it written here somewhere. Um, then there's Reformed Doctrine, which is the modern way, and we've we're wrestling with that because I mean, basically, uh, the evangelicals, the modern modern day Christians, 
they don't have a two-kingdom concept. That's something that us as Anabaptists, we hold that very strongly. And not having that uh, two-kingdom concept uh, gives us the ability to to fight our enemies, to be a part of this world and all of its cultures and uh, uh, creates an, basically individualism. And there's divorce and remarriage. And the things Jesus taught were not for us in our day and age. And, oh, here's materialism. Accumulation, that's the word I was looking for. Accumulating wealth on this earth. That's what the American dream is. Uh, become wealthy uh, and focusing on that. Become wealthy and famous. And that reform culture throws brings in woman, women's rights after World War II or during World War II, all that, all that, uh, and women's rights. I mean, that under quotation marks, that's, you know, as the world views women's rights. Uh, it, and the, it messed up the headship order, God's headship, headship order uh, in First Corinthians 11, I believe. And then it brings in non-self-denial, uh, and then there's this view, all culture is right, Just we just need to get along. We do need to get along in the sense of, of if at all possible, live peaceably with all men. Uh, but we can't just do that in the church. We can't have all a mixed culture uh, in the church. And just expect to get along. It's always going to cause some some straining and wrestling amongst the brotherhood, which is not is not what we not what we consider living peaceably. And wrestling and reckoning with our culture, our Anabaptist culture, uh, there tends to be, especially from the charity movement, and what I've. I've gathered from that back whenever that started. There's a lot of uh, the strong family culture, focusing on on strong families and families. And, and there's a there's a sense of that that's that's a that's good. Having strong family and leadership in the family, but if the family culture is so strong that uh, it there's so many different family cultures in the church. It creates a, a bunch of individual families going their own direction in the church, and you get many diverse views uh, from the pulpit and from the church, and creates a weak church. And in time, that church is going to fall apart. And Dennis uh, shared the story of Brandon. He the church only lasted 10 years with all that mixture of church culture and strong family culture. Um, and in turn, a weak church is going to create weak families. And then he shared on pop culture and the effects we face with pop culture. And he there again, we're swimming in the pop culture, and it's influencing us as Anabaptists in many ways, and a lot of them unknown. It's been un, uncharted pop culture. Popular culture is a new, relatively new thing, and it doesn't affect just our Anabaptist culture. It affects many different things. I, there, I had a coworker, and he's from some uh, four-square church or, or something like that, and and he was, he enjoys listening to country music, or used to, but he made the comment to me that there's this pop culture, pop music has affected even country music. Now, we're not standing up for country music or anything like that, but it's affected, pop culture is such a strong current out there, it's affecting even the worldly, the world and its ideals, and as as my coworker put it, it, pop music destroyed 
good country music? I mean, what, what's it doing to our culture and our music? We've got, I know it's a controversial subject, but we've got a lot of uh, contemporary Christian music that is that has been destroyed by pop culture and pop music and is just absolute pop culture has absolutely steamrolled the music uh, industry and it's also pop culture it affects all the media social media advertising movies all of those things are affected by <clears throat> pop culture and then we've got the industrial revolution and it created a push for efficiency in our workplace, totally skewing our way of relating to family and time. We're always there's always this push for being efficient, as efficient and uh, with our time and money, and in a lot of ways that can, in a lot of ways that takes away from our family time. We've got to spend more time at work to provide for the family. Well, that's a good thing. And like Dennis mentioned, you got to have a balance there. Those things, being efficient and uh, res- uh, responsible, what's the word? Uh, responsible with our time is important, but we can't have all the focus. And it seems like the Industrial Revolution has taken the focus off of family and focused it all on time and money and getting gain. And there's a lot of that in our Anabaptist circles and big businesses and it's not those things aren't wrong it's it's where's our focus where's our culture where's that culture taking us and then there's the youth culture there's the drive to be cool what's the next coolest thing uh, cool cars lights clothes attitudes and it creates a suspicion of authority well, why, why do I, why do we, dad might be asking, why do we do that? And, and, uh, or the youth, young people are asking dad, why do we do that? Why can't I do this? Well, it's something maybe that, that maybe the young people cannot see yet. And it's just, there's this, uh, not sure how to put that. Had an idea when I studied, but it's gone. Anyways, pop culture and music, we looked into that and changed most music genres. Uh, pop, and then he talked about pop culture versus folk, folk culture or high culture. I didn't quite understand the high culture part uh, as well, but the pop versus folk culture, uh, he said that pop is modern, mindless, and casual and easy. Whatever is easy, whatever feels right at the moment. Folk culture is timeless, reflecting, purposeful, and patient. And that would fall under, that's the way culture was before pop culture came around. If you look back, if you like history, back 100 years ago or more now, folk, folk culture was the mainstream culture and mm-hmm it would cause less tension in our Anabaptist culture because it's everything is purposeful and patient. Modern culture is just anything casual and you want it now. Pop culture, people are famous because they're famous. They're just famous because somehow everybody got to know them and like them. Folk culture People are famous for what they did, for something they accomplished in in this world. And pop culture is individualistic, whereas folk culture is communal. Pop culture focuses on individualism and what I can do, basically selfishness and pride, and where I can go in life. Whereas folk culture is communal, we go there together, and that is what the kind of culture us as Anabaptists are fighting with and for and against this pop culture.
and I ask her, and I like to ask ourselves, which is more biblical, and which is more attractive to us? If we're more attracted to the the pop culture, maybe maybe our heart is in the wrong place, and we're just going downstream with the current and going to end up out in sea. And moving on, counterculture development. To develop a counterculture, we have to stay away from ungodly influence, peers with different levels of convictions. And then as Dennis said, mentioned, language that almost sounds bad, like the four-letter words, words that sound uh, almost like the world, you might as well, if you're using those, you might as well just accept that worldly culture. You're either going with the culture or you're fighting it. There's no middle ground. And another thing to counter to develop counterculture is to develop strong personal convictions and be near godly influence the church and then as Dennis shared with the I was going to write that same diagram on the board uh, but I'll pass over that Dennis described that very clearly about the habits or about the hands About the where was that? Lost my place. Convictions coming through habits. I had a quote written here and missed it. Anyways, one thing that we get from following past uh, culture and and creating our convictions through those habits, we get virtue, and virtue comes by imitation. And that's another thing pop culture pushes individualism, calling that imitation fakery. Which, that's an idea that we're, we as disciples of Christ are not, are not called to take part of because we are called to follow Christ. To imitate him. That's what a Christian basically broke down means is little Christ and we are to imitate him in every way uh, possible. And he shared this story of a an ex-Amishman that was sitting in on some preaching and the the preacher used the nickel mine shooting as an illustration and and shared how the Amish responded to that in love and forgiveness towards the shooter. And and this ex-Amishman was offended at that and said that they responded in love because that is how they are, or that is how they were raised. And he, he shared that, that was, that's basically how we develop convictions. We're raised that way. And we do it out of habit. It's something we, our natural response is to respond in love to someone that has despitefully used us. And that is how virtue is created. And moving on, uh, creating or cultivating culture, creating and cultivating culture. As Dennis shared, you've got to be able to cultivate before creating. Uh, we'll move on with that. Dennis shared that very thoroughly, on that very thoroughly. Um, there's going to be people full of critiques and suggestions and new ways for new ways of doing things. And then there's people that see others having success 
and adopt that way and cultivate it. And then Okay, here's that quote. Hands shape the heart, doing shapes conviction, which is habits. How'd that end up there? Anyways. The proper order for the creating culture is cultivating it, and we cannot... We cannot create culture until we have cultivated it. Otherwise, we end up with what we had in the early days of charity, where they left, you know, what was called church standards. And it wasn't long before it was realized that individualism and that way of doing things and living wasn't stable and many have left that culture to cultivate a successful culture where brotherhood and unity in direction is more valued than, I mean, lending ourselves to the direction of the Holy Spirit, which, say that carefully, in that we should be listening to the Holy Spirit, but having that individualistic way of cultivating that uh, leaves for very unstable culture. And choosing a culture, you shared on when choosing a culture in our circles, send children or go to Anabaptist events, uh, instill a critical thinking in them, not a critical spirit. <clears throat> Children also need to know why we do what we do and why we think how we do. Then allow children to make some decisions. They will learn decisions have consequences. By making decisions and making bad decisions, creating a mistake, and then fixing the mistakes builds strong convictions. Basically, they come to those convictions on their own through struggling through through something and then coming out on the other end stronger and knowing why they came to that place in their heart. Otherwise, you end up with a very shallow culture that won't last for generations to come because they have just continued on what their parents and church leaders have told them to do. And we see that a lot in the conservative, ultra-conservative circles. Well, why do we do things? Well, it's just the way I was taught. It hasn't become personal to them. They haven't arrived on that to that on their own. And there's a lot of things that can bring us to that position. Um, And then the next uh, section, interacting with other cultures. There needs to be a goodwill towards all cultures. We're not the only culture that, that upholds Christian values. We're not the only culture that's the right, that's the right way to live. That doesn't mean we are to live like them, like evangelical Christians, you know, Baptist, Catholic, Mormon. You know, the, the Catholic and Mormon, they're definitely, I mean, they would claim to be Christians, but there's a culture that comes along with that. Basically modern uh, pop mindset. Um, And then we need to build strong convictions in children, and when, and when they are strong, they can interact with others without falling out. 
I had some thoughts on that, but I can't remember. Anyways, so moving on with Lee Rufner, decided to share a little bit on that. Um, he he shared a true man has been raised by a man or birthed by a man. A man becomes a man in the wilderness. There's a lot of biblical uh, uh, examples of that with Moses and John the Baptist and Elijah. We're all taught by God in the wilderness. We are taught by God as well in the wilderness. And he said that if we don't feel like we've gone through the wilderness, yet don't try to create a wilderness experience for ourselves just accept it when it comes when we come encounter trials tribulations we need a lord what will you have me to do attitude and we may be tempted to leave the faith if things get difficult but that is like dropping out of god's school not taking his class in the wilderness and these he made the con- he commented that solitude and time on the back burner is not wasted time. It is none other than God who put us there. This is where we earn the title, the Son of God. <clears throat> then he shared that macho men go to boot camp and are under man's authority, whereas real men go through the wilderness and are under God's authority. Worldly men fight in war or hold high positions. Real men are able to lead, lead, care for a family, and raise real men. And there's the two-kingdom concept again. You can't have both. You can't serve in those earthly ways and, uh, and try to be under God at the same time. It, it, it's that, it's that current again. <clears throat> and then one thing he shared I found pretty interesting uh, was a view on Elijah and Elisha. Um, he went through in, in uh, Elisha's journey with Elijah and Elijah passing the mantle on to, on to Elisha. I had never really thought about this before, and maybe some of you have too, that Elisha did not go up to heaven in a chariot of fire. And I'll read here part of the account, and he says, It came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And basically, Elisha wanted the mantle of Elijah wanted that blessing from God and he followed Elijah and saw all the things lived and and accumulated all that knowledge from Elijah so that he could continue on as Elijah had and we can't be as men we cannot be distracted by the world and its direction and he gave that example with Elisha and the, the chariot of fire and Elijah, and he shared that the he, he told put it that the um, the chariot and the horses of fire were just a distraction, because it says here in Second Kings. In verse 2 Kings 2, verse 10, he says, it, he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing, nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee, but if not, it shall not be so. Basically, he, Elisha had to see as Elijah went up into heaven. 
And it came to pass as they still went on and talked that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he said, he cried, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. Basically, if we're not living a life of purpose, if we're, us as men are not living a life of purpose, if we're not continuing to fight against those cultural currents, we're going to miss the coming of the Lord, and we're going to miss many things in life if we, uh, if we don't uh, keep our eyes off the distractions.